0: This podcast is brought to you by the Gosh Learning Academy. Hello, and welcome to Master the MRCPCH. In this podcast, we tap into the expertise here at Great Ormond Street Hospital, giving you an overview of a topic on the RCPCH curriculum. You may be revising for an exam or just fancy brushing up on a need to know topic. I'm Emma, the Digital Education Fellow at Great Ormond Street, and your host for today's podcast. In this episode, I am joined by consultant pediatric surgeon, Dania Mulaseri, for the first episode on common neonatal surgical conditions. This will cover points in both the gastroenterology and neonatology sections of the MRCPCH curriculum. Welcome back to the podcast again, Dania. Thank you, Emma. It's lovely to be here. So, what would you like people to get out of this podcast? And can you just summarize the conditions that we're hoping to cover in the part of this episode that we're recording today? So, in this episode, we are hoping to give the listeners the
1: key clinical facts on mainly the atresias in the intestinal system. So, we start with its vaginal atresia, all the way down to pyloric atresia, and the rest of the intestinal atresias as such we we'll tried try to cover the pathology, incidence, management, and outcomes in brief for these conditions as maybe relevant for a pediatric
0: training. Fantastic. So I guess if we're talking mainly about atresia, the most obvious question is, what do we mean by the term atresia? Is there a definition that you can share with us? So when we're talking about atresias,
1: we are generally discussing a condition where there is abnormal development of an organ. This is usually an organ which has a continuous lumen and this tends to be not in communication with the rest of that cavity in atresia. So for example, you can take intestinal atresia, you have disconnection between two parts of the intestine and this can be to varying extents in that they can be a small web, they can be a complete disconnection and, or they can be just a solid bar between. So it is connection which is lost between two continuous
0: parts of an organ. Right, okay, that makes complete sense. So I guess let's start at the top and work our way down. So starting with esophageal atresia, can you just explain what the anatomical defect is in this condition?
1: Yeah, so esophageal atresia, the name suggests, is the congenital malformation where the esophagus is not normally formed. There are five variants of this condition, with the most common one being a blind ending upper esophagus, with the distal tracheoesophageal fistula. This is in about 80% of the patients who have esophageal atresia. The least common one is a blind ending upper esophagus with a proximal connection to the trachea, as well as a distal tracheoesophageal fistula.
0: Overall, we see esophageal atresia in about one in 2,500 to 3,000 live births. Okay. And from what you're saying, it's usually, in most cases, accompanied by a tracheoesophageal fistula in some location. It's just that the location of that fistula varies. That's correct. So the most common one
1: has the connection to the trachea from the distal esophagus. The second common one has actually got a pure atresia that's not connected to either end. And then the others are even less common of the connection from the top end or having connection from both ends or even having an intact esophagus, which goes down, but then has a fistula between the trachea and the esophagus.
0: And how do neonates with an esophageal atresia and TOS typically present? So esophageal atresia is still not very often diagnosed antenatally.
1: The findings on antenates and ultrasound, if they are picked up, can include polyhydramnios and a fluid-filled blind ending proximal esophagus. So the diagnosis is mostly made following birth. The typical presentation is that of a baby choking after an attempted feed, followed by a failure to pass an asogastric tube.
0: And that prompts the clinical team usually to do an x-ray, which will give you the diagnosis. Right, okay. What investigations can then be performed to help you make make your diagnosis? The initial investigation, as we said, is
1: a plain x-ray of the chest to confirm whether the nasogastric tube is held in an upper pouch and to assess roughly what level is that staying at. An abdominal x-ray is also needed to assess for the presence of gas in the stomach. And that tells us whether there is a fistula from the airway. So if there is no gas at all in the stomach, that gives you an indication that this is a pure atresia, there is interconnection to the airway at all. The abdominal x-ray can also give you information about other associated abnormalities, including duodenal atresia, inner rectal as well as
0: some of the vascular spectrum, such as abnormal additional roots or vertebral anomalies. Okay. Fantastic. So other important anomalies to look out for in children presenting with an esophageal atresia. How are these neonates managed? So part one is
1: your initial resuscitative management, including ensuring a patent airway assessment and management of breathing as necessary. If a nasogastric tube is passed, usually from the referring hospitals, a nasogastric tube is passed to make sure that they can aspirate intermittently so that the secretions do not overspill into the trachea. If you have a replogal tube, which is a special tube which has two lumens and you can actually suction continuously as well as flush it in between, then that is what we ideally like to place. So, as soon as they come to a surgical center, we would place a replogal tube in the upper part to enable continuous aspirations as well as flushing as needed. Secure IV access, of course, for fluid resuscitation as well as for maintenance and antibiotics. An early referral to a pediatric surgical center so that we can organize a safe transfer to then plan the surgical repair. Once they arrive to the surgical center, we confirm the diagnosis again by an x-ray Usually with one of us pushing on the replugal tube to make sure that we know that it's not an NG which is just coiling in itself and that we know what the level of the atresia is likely to be for the upper pouch. We also need a preoperative echo to give us information one, on associated significant cardiac anomalies which are contributors to the mortality and morbidity for the visual atresia. And this also helps us to plan the technical aspects of the surgery, such as which side to access and what to expect in our way while we
0: are looking for the esophagus. Can you just talk me through the principles of the surg- of the surgical management? So surgical management typically starts with an area
1: assessment for the presence, number and location of the fistulae from the trachea. The operation then involves going into the chest, so this can be either thoracoscopic or open. And the first part is that we want to disconnect the esophagus from the trachea. So that's ligation and division of the tracheoesophageal fistula if it is present. And then the second part is to try and anastomose the two ends of the esophagus. When the two ends are too far apart to bring together initially, one decision may be that we perform a gastrostomy to enable enteral feeding and growth so that we can return to theater at a later stage to reassess the gap and anastomose when feasible. In patients who continue to have this long gap despite waiting for several weeks, an esophagostomy may be performed, so that's an opening into the neck, that's the esophagus opening into the neck, and that enables uh, airway protection as well as to give some sham feeds so that the child can actually have some oral skills while we wait for the definitive repair, which can be in the form of an esophageal replacement, which is done around the age of one. In some centers, when the gap is big, there are several traction maneuvers that have been reported to be useful in terms of internal or external traction. The principle of this is that you are putting some traction to both ends of the esophagus, and then you're pulling it with stitches either inside or outside or magnets and trying to bring them together. We are currently not doing it because of some concerns about one, the safety of it in in terms of being able to do it. And what is the complications in terms of risks and uh, late perforations, etc. And also because the method that we use with the delayed repairs
0: appears to be quite good at getting safe results so far. Right. Okay. So the definitive treatment of basically joining the two ends back up again, can't always be done straight away just because be really too big a gap. Yes. But if the gap is small enough, you would always aim to fix it as soon as That's possible. That's correct. Yes. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. Are there any long-term complications that general pediatricians should be aware of assessing these children in the future?
1: Yes. So the main complications to be aware of following that initial post-operative period and discharge are stricture and recurrent fistula. Stricture usually presents with increased difficulty with oral feeding. So this can be persistent cough or aspiration pneumonia. This can also be a presenting symptom of a recurrent fistula, which happens in one to two percent. A tight stricture can also cause similar symptoms. The stricture is much more common. It happens in about 30 to 50% of the patients who have esophageal atresia. So that's more likely to be the case if there is a problem with dysphagia. Other factors to be aware of in this group are gastroesophageal reflux, asinophilic esophagitis, hyperreactive airways, and the long-term risk of Barrett's esophagus with slightly increased risk of also esophageal cancer. So children with esophageal atresia are therefore followed up in a multidisciplinary clinic with monitoring and management of all of these things. Also with endoscopic surveillance, at least at certain time periods in their life to look for these. And then also a transition to adult services. So they grow into the adult world with a realistic understanding of what they can expect to have in terms of quality of life and symptoms to expect and for they need to approach if they have those.
0: Right. Okay. So follow-up is actually needed all the way through to adulthood and beyond and these, these yes. babies. Okay. That's interesting and helpful to know. The main thing to say is that pyloric atresia is very different from pyloric stenosis because it's
1: easily confused. Pyloric atresia is rare congenital malformation and alternately can be detected by seeing a large stomach bubble and postnatally presents with non-bilear swabase. Typically, a contrast study would confirm the diagnosis. The common uh, association is with epidermolysis borosa, and that can also have a high uh, mortality rate. And it's not because of the pyloric atries, it's actually the complex comorbidity that causes it. So... Presentation, as we discussed, surgical management in simple terms, depends on the type of stricture. And yeah, in that we said, sometimes it can be just a web, sometimes it can be completed connection, and essentially it is making a way through to connect the stomach to the rest of the intestines. And it can be that if it's just a web, we can open the web and make a way through. Sometimes it's a pyloroplasty if it's just tight and you can make it wider. But if it is an absolute obstruction, then you're looking at bypass procedures. So, either you do a gastroduodenostomy, so it's getting the duodenum connected to the stomach, or a gastrojegenostomy, which is connecting the jejunum to the stomach. And as I say, not very common, but you
0: can come across it occasionally. Right. Okay. And just to be clear, because I find it a little bit confusing the difference between the pyloric stenosis and atresia when they sound like they should be quite similar. So, pyloric stenosis is something that develops after birth, which is why the children don't present till later. Four, four to six weeks.
1: Yes. So typically it does not affect genital malformation, which is why it cannot be diagnosed antenatally. It develops over a period of a few weeks. Typical age for a term neonate is anything from four to six weeks. It can be up to 12 weeks of presentation. And the symptoms can be similar in that it's non-bilius vomit, but the difference is that the, the pyloric poly- It's easier. they're born with, they start off with not being able to take anything into the stomach. Whereas with pyloric stenosis, you have a good period where the baby's actually feeding, growing, then suddenly stops feeding, starts vomiting, and a normal way baby suddenly starts to go down in terms of weight and hydration and all of those. Whereas with pyloric you you will never get that good time at all because there is no nutrition going in.
0: Okay, and is that the case even if the atresia is at the milder end of the spectrum, so where it's just a web as opposed to a full blockage?
1: Yes, if it's a web with a tiny opening, it can present slightly later because you're only going to be on milk feeds in the first instance. So small chance of it presenting later, but the more common presentation of hyaluronic atresia is switched and absolute obstruction in the first
0: day of life. Right, okay. And so then these babies are managed, again, with initial resuscitation, passing an NG tube and fluid resuscitation, and then the surgical yes. options, as you've already yes. discussed. What's their long-term prognosis like relating to just the pyloric atresia? I know you said it's dependent on whether they have other comorbidities. Yes.
1: On its own, it does not particularly high on the complications and long-term morbidity from just having a pyloric atresia on its own. Slightly does depend on what surgery they have had in that gastrojejunostomy, makes it easier sometimes for the body to reflux back into the stomach and you can get some biliary gastritis. Similarly, there are complications with gastrojejunostomy that you can have in terms of ulcers because of the anastomosis, et cetera. So those are more surgical related complications rather than
0: because of the atresia itself because you have bypassed the part that's obstructed already. And then moving down the track further to the intestine, so intestinal atresia, can you tell me a bit about the different types of intestinal atresia? So going down, we would start with the
1: duodenal, which is probably the most common. It's about 1 in 2,000 live births, typically seen antenatally in ultrasound at the double bubble with higher incidence in trisomy 21. Postnatally, they can present with bilious vomits typically, but sometimes non-bilious vomits if the obstruction is proximal to the entry of the bile duct, which is into the second part of the duodenum. Postnatal diagnosis is often confirmed on a plain x-ray, but sometimes needs a contrast study. Surgical repair involves, again, bypass of the obstructed segment, typically by a duogen or duogenostomy. So you're just going above and below where the obstructive segment is. The next Heart or the atresius would be jejunal and ileal atresius. So jejunal is the first one. They're quite similar. They can sometimes be picked up antenatally with polyhydramnios and dilated bowel loops, but more often presents postnatally with abdominal distension, green vomits, green gastric aspirates. In these ones, abdominal x-ray helps to get a diagnosis of possible intestinal obstruction But it is quite challenging to get the exact level of obstruction of pre-surgery. Sometimes a contrast may help in this, but often we find laparotomy is needed to understand that. So typically the atretic segment in in these are resected and a primary anastomosis is performed. So you're joining the two ends. And as you can imagine, there is usually a caliber change in that a part which is chronically obstructed will be dilated upstream The part which has never been used will be a tragic and completely collapsed segment. And there is that discrepancy in that anastomosis. If then concern concerned that the joint may not function well in terms of either vascularity or any inflammation around or if they have been already a perpiration, et cetera, uh, we would consider doing an uh, stoma at the level of the proximal atresia after we remove the obstructed segment give it some time for the upstream part to decompress and then do an anastomosis later. So that's jejunum and ileum. Then the last part would be the colonic. So colonic atresia is rare. It is reported in about 1 in 10,000 or so live birds. It usually presents postnatally because it's similar to a distal atresia. It's much further down in the intestine. So it would present typically with abdominal distension, failure to pass meconium after two or three days. And abdominal x-rays can be quite typical for colonic atresia. Contrast enema is often helpful in getting a diagnosis. So you pass some contrast from the anus, scoop up, and you will see that this contrast is not getting to the dilated part, it stops at some point, and there is a dilated part of the coron you can see in plain x-rays. So th- that would be the features that we're looking for in colonic type of atresias, which can be as distal as rectal atresias. And the surgery again involves laparotomy and consideration of either a primary anastomosis or stoma formation, which can be slightly more
0: of complex decision-making intraoperatively for the coronary atresias. Right, okay. I mean, this might be a massive oversimplification for a surgeon, but it sounds from what you're saying, like the general principles are that as you move down the GI tract with intestinal atresia, it becomes rarer to have an atresia there. Yeah. Um, I think that's, that's fair, fair, because the duodenum is the most common Then the jejum Yeah, yeah. And it also affects presentation in that the further down the bowel you go, the later you would present. That is um, correct. So the change is that when you have upstream obstruction, the baby clearly
1: will have inability to feed straight away in terms of either brain vomiting or vomiting at least, or not able to take, bring it down, the further you go. The baby may actually even take a little bit of feeds in the first instance. So it it needs time for things to go and stop at the place that it's actually obstructed. And therefore, this tension might be the first sign before the vomiting even becomes
0: that obvious and failure to pass my cornea because things are not moving. Right. Okay. And then the principles of management for all of them are similar in that you'd want to resuscitate the baby before thinking about surgical management, which will inevitably always be a laparotomy to, to make yes. anastomosis if possible. Correct. Yes. Fantastic. That's really helpful to, to think about those principles. What's the long-term prognosis like for babies with intestinal atresia?
1: Pretty good overall, because all of these are surgically easily treatable, very few comorbidities except for duodenal atresia, which is associated with the Downs, as well as cardiac malformations. So from um, a surgical and anatomical aspect, the main problem from having had a laparotomy and in surgery is of the risk of adhesion obstruction, which is a long-term risk, up to 5%, and it can present any time during their life, presents with green vomiting and severe abdominal pain, as typically. Other than that, it's fairly straightforward journey once they get on to full enteral feeding and start to gain weight, et cetera, as long as... There are no other comorbidities. One other thing to just be aware of is that instanilatresias are often known to have multiple sites at the same time. So whenever you have one, we would look for the other. We would walk the bowel around to make sure that there
0: isn't a multiple at the same time so they can all be addressed at the same time. Right. Okay. Yeah, I can see that that would be very important. So I'm going to move on now to our standard quick fire questions. So firstly, as a paediatric surgeon, what do you feel it's important for a general paediatrician to know about this subject? What would you ask them in an exam? I think the key things uh, I would want them to know about, because they are the team who picks these up
1: before we know about them. Being aware of the diagnosis of potential atresias as a reason for the presentations of either failure to tolerate feeds or vomiting itself, being able to understand what the bilious versus non-bilious vomiting indicates. And we've talked about malrotation already previously and being aware of which are the conditions which we need to blue light across and which are the ones which can, for example, if you think, if you're thinking about a distal and obstruction versus a possible malrotation, having that sieve in your mind to be able to triage to say who needs to go to a surgical center first. And then the second part, I think, is about uh, absolutely about the resuscitation because that has to be done before the child gets to us. Being aware of the potential diagnosis, being able to resuscitate and make sure that they are well prepared for a safe transfer. And we get that minimum amount of basic information that I have said is of something that all of us as doctors would be able to
0: get across to the team that you're referring to. Okay, fantastic. Secondly, are there any useful resources that you would recommend for listeners who might want to find out more about this topic?
1: Now, these topics, each of them are chapters in every textbook, so it might be a little bit too much to go into reading all of it you take any of the pediatric surgical textbooks, you will have a chapter on these. So I'm not sure I can suggest one paper to go for all of these because there's reviews, hundreds of them on any of these topics. So if you have a specific one, seminars in pediatric surgery is a good place to start with. It will have a latest update on all of these individually to look at.
0: Okay, brilliant. And then finally, what are your three takeaway learning points from the podcast today? Let's say the first one is that all pediatricians are able
1: to recognize when there is an acute surgical condition in the neonates, which is a potential atresia. The second one is the ability to be able to resuscitate and enable a safe transport for these children in a timely manner and knowing which ones are time critical. And the third one would be being aware of the long-term surgical and medical comorbidities in the in these groups, particularly the esophageal atresia, which is a lifelong thing that pediatricians and pediatric surgeons need to be able to support them throughout their childhood
0: and hand over to the adult sector as they're transitioning. Okay, that's fantastic. Thank you so much for such a brilliant overview of the atresias. And um, we hope to have you back again on the podcast in the future. Thank you, Emma. Thank you for listening to this episode of Master the MRCPCH. We would love to get your feedback about the episode and get your ideas for future topics that you would like to hear covered. You can find a link to our feedback page in the description for the episode or email us at digital.learning at gosh.nhs.uk. If you want to hear more about the work of the GOSH Learning Academy, you can find us on Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn or visit our website at www.gosh.nhs.uk and search Learning Academy. We hope you enjoyed this episode and we'll see you next time. Goodbye.